Hey everyone, a quick note before today's show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening to the show. It will take only 20 seconds and is the single most effective way for you to help us share this podcast and the broader free speech message with more people. Thank you. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. And on today's episode, we're going to take a look at music censorship. And to do this, I'm handing over the reins of the podcast to my colleague and so to speak editor Aaron Reese, who will speak with author Eric Newsom. In 2001, Eric wrote the book Parental Advisory, Music Censorship in America. And as you all know, we've briefly touched on music censorship in past episodes. Uh, We covered, for example, the criminalization of rap music when we spoke with Eric Nielsen and Andrea Dennis about their book Rap on Trial. And back in October, I spoke to lawyer Bob Corn Revere, who at the time had just published his book, The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, which devoted a whole chapter to music censorship. During that conversation, you'll recall Bob talked about the strange case of the song Louie Louie, which the FBI investigated for filthy lyrics. Because music has a powerful impact on our lives, the stories are numerous, and because rock stars, rappers, and other musicians can be elevated to godlike stature and be adored by teens, the impulse to censor and regulate music is strong. So we're planning to release several episodes on music censorship over the next year. In this episode, we'll focus on some of the more notable cases of censorship in America, involving artists such as Elvis, The Beatles, Marilyn Manson, Ozzy Osbourne, and Two Live Crew as well as the formation of the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, and the lasting effects that organization had on the music industry. So now, I'm going to turn it over to Aaron Reese, interviewing Eric Newsom, and I hope you all enjoy. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Eric Newsom about his appropriately titled book, Parental Advisory, Music Censorship in America, from 2001, which details censorship in the music industry, as well as historical instances of music censorship. Thank you again for talking with me today, Eric. My pleasure. So, like many people, music has been integral in discovering who I am and its shaped culture in so many ways. Music censorship is such an interesting topic to explore. I want to do a quote from your book. You write, quote, It's interesting that parents of today live through the chastisement of their music, yet some chose to lobby against the music their children find appealing. In the 1950s, some wanted Elvis Presley run out of town, even though he is featured on a postage stamp. You ain't nothing but a hound Did Elvis change after the 50s? Absolutely. But given the choice, those voting on the stamp's design wanted to remember Elvis exactly the way their parents hated him. Yesterday's villain is today's hero. That, to me, defines the arc of censorship. If it's okay for your generation, it seems to stay with you as you grow older. Well, you understood it. You know, um... The reason that music is such a great marker or calling card for people in expressing who they are, you know, um, many people when they talk about free expression, talk about an artist's right to express. They don't often focus on the recipient's right to receive it and to use it in their own way. Um, Anyone who's ever worn a band t-shirt or quoted some poetry to someone 
has taken artistic expression and used it to be their own expression, repurposed it. And music does that all the time. It shows who you are. It shows what you value. It shows what you're interested in. It can show the way you view the world or how much of the world you see. If I say I'm into some very pedestrian, nothing wrong with that, top 40 music, and then somebody else says, oh, I'm Mufasa Drummer Queen from Kenya is my favorite artist, it says something about who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. And so the important thing to remember with any act of censorship be it between a parent and child or a community leader and someone in the community or someone white versus someone who's black is that the person who sees it and understands it and uses it as their own expression, that doesn't change with time. It's not like someone says, oh, Elvis Presley was great when I was 14, but now I'm 27. I see how awful he was. I'm sure that happens in some realms of life, but you rarely hear that said about musicians. And like how inappropriate it is, uh, you got it, so you don't mind other people getting it. And it was a sign of your, you know, that Elvis postage stamp statement was really, you know, Elvis meant something to kids in the 1950s. It was an exploration, an explosion of youth culture then, for the and teenage culture for really the first time, because teenage culture becoming its own real thing. I'm all shook up. There was little kid culture and there was adult culture. There really wasn't teen culture. And uh, with a baby boom um, beginning in the 1950s, you saw that change where there was a teen culture. And so it was like represented them, um, in essence, coming out as human beings. And um, that's the way they wanted to remember him. There's many people in the 1980s when you had the PMRC Many people would say, well, this stuff isn't like Fats Domino or isn't like Little Richard or isn't like Elvis. All artists who were who their parents' generation had actively tried to suppress and control and censor. And then they're advocating for things that now seem very tepid to us today. Eric Newsom just mentioned Little Richard. There's a really interesting passage in his book about Little Richard's signature song, Tutti Frutti. Yes, indeed. But you don't know what you do to me. To the oh, Beginning in 1955, artist Pat Boone began re-recording songs with sanitized lyrics. Newsom writes, quote, Boone's versions of these songs often contain toned-down lyrics, such as substituting drinking Coca-Cola for drinking wine and T-Bone Walker's Stormy Monday, and Pretty Little Susie is the girl for me, instead of Boys, You Don't Know What You Do To Me, in Little Richard's Tutti Frutti. She's a real gone cookie, yes siree. Pretty little Susie is the gal for me. Tutti Frutti, all the Tutti Frutti. Eric Newsom begins his book by telling the story of the album cover for the Beatles record Yesterday and Today. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. I feel like I've been an audiophile most of my life, and I've never heard this story before. Really? That, yeah, I'd never heard it. <laughs> that uh, album art, like music, was censored you know, many times as well. And uh, the Fab Four, the Fab Four, the original cover, they were sitting, they were wearing lab coats, covered in bloody meat and decapitated dolls. Mm-hmm. And they were commenting, essentially, on American consumerism chopping up their records. Can you tell that story? 
Yeah, from what I remember of it, and it's interesting, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a record store, and they had on display what's commonly known as the butcher cover. They look like lab, lab coats are probably like what a butcher would wear, or an old-style butcher of like a, a coat to cover their clothing. And the American record company for the Beatles would take the British pressings that had, let's say, I'm just making this up for illustrative purposes, let's say that had 14 songs on it. They would put out the American version with 10 songs on it and then build up the extra songs so they could make another Beatles album out of it. So they'd take a couple songs off every uh, album and then put out another one. That's why the release and titles and, and track listings of UK albums for the Beatles are different than the US. It's the primary reason why. And they didn't like this practice. So just as a protest, they decided to make this cover where they're wearing these smocks and they're covered with pieces of meat and baby doll heads and they all got these big grins on their face. And you look at it today and you're like, that's an odd image, but you could see that on the news. You could show that. Too. It's a, It's not graphic at all. But back in the 1960s, it was like... Like, from another planet. Like, why would you do this? If I needed someone to love, you're the one that I'd be thinking of. And so they, uh, it became known as the Butcher Cover uh, because of the, it looked like there were a bunch of butchers or what have you and were protesting the butchering of their records. And Capitol Records, faced with recalling all these copies of this album, decided to paste over another picture on front of it so they didn't have to reprint or, or throw out the uh, the old ones. And you can find um, in the used record market, it's a very collectible item, uh, and its value is based on how much damage was done to the original image with the pasted over version. Some, you see some that go for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, where you can't tell there was ever anything pasted over it. And then you see some like the one I saw where you can still see a film over the top of it where it's very clearly been something was originally on top of it that was taken off poorly. Um, there used to be lots of instructions on the internet of how to take a butcher record and get the cover off of it, but they're so rare now that nobody really does that anymore. I want to be famous, a star on the screen But you can do something in between Another thing coming out of the 60s that was just a crazy story in your book, a radio station owner named Gordon McLendon took a massive censorship campaign in the 1960s. Um, you write, one of the employees of McLendon's 13 radio stations found his daughter listening to the Rolling Stones, Let's Spend the Night Together. He destroyed the record. Then he takes this initiative that I find very strange. McLendon eventually took his cause to the American Mothers Committee Convention in New York City, claiming that the British musicians were to blame for the infestation of obscene music in the United States. One of McLendon's proposals included assembling a committee of prostitutes and junkies to screen songs for obscene lingo. You heard that correctly. The American Mothers Committee an organization presumably committed to upstanding values, supported Gordon McLendon's idea 
of paying prostitutes and junkies to listen to songs for hidden messages. I asked Eric Newsom about censorship methods, often being worse than whatever they are trying to prevent. Oh yeah, that's, that's a very common thing uh, where they see something. The, the problem with censorship is it's almost impossible to protect only the people that you feel need protecting. Like, for example, if there are children that you don't think should see or hear an album, a parent can make that choice. There's nothing wrong with that choice, to be quite honest. What, I'm not an absolutist that everyone should be able to listen to everything they want all the time. If a parent says to a child, it's not appropriate for you to hear that, that's the parent's choice. I think it's fine. Uh, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, but that's ne- rarely what happens in the public space. Um, people don't want to just prevent their kids from seeing it. They want to prevent all kids from seeing it. And then regardless of what parents think, and then the the protective measures they put in place often overcorrect for the problem and are worse than the original problem. That they're like, okay, we're going to put this behind glass and you have to show ID in order to buy it. Well, what if I walk into a record store? Do I always have a driver's license with me? When I do? No, I'm, I'm inconvenienced by that. I may be intimidated by that. It definitely interferes with the musician's ability to sell their records and the record company to be able to sell their product. It affects other things. Like there was times when if someone was on a list of questionable artists, that not only could they not be played on the radio or were discouraged from playing on the radio, when they would do live concerts, that also became an issue as well. And it's always been an issue. When bands perform on television for late night talk shows, They've often been asked to change lyrics, to sanitize their songs, to comply with network standards and practices. Notably, in 1967, when The Doors performed on The Ed Sullivan Show, they were asked to change the lyric, Girl, we couldn't get much higher, to Girl, we couldn't get much better, or Girl, there's nothing I require, in the song Light My Fire. And although Jim Morrison agreed to do this and sang it that way in rehearsal, he ended up singing the original lyric during broadcast, which caused controversy. and The Doors were never invited back to perform on The Ed Sullivan Show. When The Rolling Stones performed on The Ed Sullivan Show, the lyric, Let's Spend the Night Together, was changed to Let's Spend Some Time Together. For example, uh, in the 1990s, when you had the parental advisory sticker that the book is named after, you had lots of artists who faced censorship because their album had a sticker on it. And the uh, so this arbitrary standard of putting a sticker on an album was now affecting the concert industry where people of only a certain age could go see it if it had carried a sticker. So it's like oftentimes the reaction is an overreaction and their solution or their solve for the problem they perceive, which often isn't real, ends up impeding the abilities of far more people and they justify it with well, it's worth doing this to protect children. Right. Well, protect children from what? A nonsense problem that you made up? On one side, the PTA and a group of influential women in Washington, D.C. called the Parents Music Resource Center. On the other side, the American Civil Liberties Union and the recording industry, all of them fighting over a certain kind of rock and roll. Can you talk about the PMRC and their efforts? So there was a cottage industry tied to the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s, where a number of 
preachers uh, or evangelicals or people tied to the kind of religious right in the United States would tour around the country and give talks and lectures to church groups or PTAs or various groups talking about the evils of rock music. They would talk, then they came up with from things as kind of like understandable as there are thematic elements of this song that bother me or bother us or should bother you as parents to preposterous things like that um, musicians were Satanists and would chant satanic prayers over piles of record albums before they were sold to children, to that there were uh, subliminal messages hidden inside of music. All these really kind of... these, These group of people who would basically charge people to come and give talks at their church or through their group realized they would get more bookings the more preposterous the or outlandish the claims were and so it became the self-feeding machine of if i want to be able to make an income from touring or talking to people about rock music i need to come up with some real you know jaw droppers and it just incentivized people to exaggerate outside intelligent forces with supernatural power are occasionally able to play an artist much like we would play a musical instrument they show these same programs, the rock concerts, on television, and it's just like all hell was let loose. In fact, you may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm not afraid to speak out. I think that the music in hell for eternally be some of this rock music with all its vulgarities and all of its sexual innuendos. And people would hear this and it would freak them out. You know, they would say, oh, my God, I didn't know Satanists were talking to my children and all these messages and this music and this artwork is so terrible. And... Out of that grew the PMRC, which is when these kind of movements came to um, uh, suburban Washington, D.C., and they uh, started this group to do something about this because they all had stories of music that their children were listening to they found very disturbing and concerning. Uh, In the case of Tipper Gore, who was then married to Al Gore, former vice president, then senator from uh, Tennessee, she had gone to the record store with her daughter and had purchased a copy of the soundtrack for Purple Rain from Prince, had brought it home and put it on the stereo and played it for her four children, ranging from teen years down to you know, toddlers. And then heard uh, Darling Nikki, which was a song about, which had a lyric about masturbating with a magazine in a hotel lobby, and freaked out. I knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, And just to rewind on the facts there, you have Tipper Gore purchased an album soundtrack to an R rated film. The lyrics were printed on the album cover, uh, which she did not review. Um, she played it sight unseen or unheard for her four children, ranging down to, I think the youngest was two, and they heard things that uh, were not very thinly veiled uh, sexual references. Um, and this is somehow Prince's fault. <laughs> this is Prince's fault. Right. And it's not her fault at all. Dig if you will. 
So as a result, she cre- she worked with this group and created an organization called the Parents Music Resource Center. And they started a campaign during the summer of 1985 to draw attention to the evils of rock music. And it kind of caught on fire in a surprising way. Cover of several magazines, um, guests on TV shows, talking about these terrible things that these musicians did. Tipper Gore, wife of U.S. Senator Albert Gore, heads the campaign to label all records that deal with drugs, sex, or violence. But as parents, we believe we have a right to some consumer guidance in our effort to protect our own children from material that we believe may be inappropriate for them. They had a classification system which they were very proud of, which identified music that had drug references, sexual references, violence references. The one that was the strangest was occult references, which at that time seemed like a real thing to them, even though it seems kind of comical. One of the proposals was printing the symbol R on the cover of explicit albums, and the five categories of explicit content were explicit sexual language, violence, profanity, the occult, and the glorification of drugs and alcohol. So they had all these things that they felt, and, and they're, they're, what they felt were reasonable solves for this. That, as you mentioned, it carries a sticker, or at least be labeled in some way. The sale be restricted, much like you would with pornography. They wanted concert posters or advertisements to contain these warnings as well. They're really concerned about album cover art, too. And it's all accumulated with a, a, a hearing in front of the Commerce Committee, um, which uh, two of their husbands sat on that committee, including Al Gore. And they went and presented their case, and then followed by no one's quite sure who picked the people to speak on behalf of the music industry, but it ended up being John Denver, the singer-songwriter, Dee Snyder, lead singer of the band Twisted Sister, and Frank Zappa. They tried to tease and make fun of Dee Snyder, and he held his own pretty well. That's a very intimidating situation. Here's Dee Snyder. Since I seem to be the only person addressing this committee today who has been a direct target of accusations from the presumably responsible PMRC, I would like to use this occasion to speak on a more personal note and show just how unfair the whole concept of lyrical interpretation and judgment can be and how many times this can amount to little more than character assassination. The PMRC compiled a list of 15 songs that they found the most objectionable. This list was called the Filthy 15, and Twisted Sister was on the list for their song We're Not Gonna Take It. Frank Zappa and John Denver both were amazing advocates for for the music industry. Um, Some were surprised at how eloquent John Denver was on this subject. Honorable Chairman, members of the committee, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor and a privilege to to appear before you this morning and to take advantage of the opportunity given me in our free society to speak my mind. I'm here to address the issue of a possible rating system in the recording industry. These hearings have been called to determine whether or not the government should intervene to enforce this practice. Mr. Chairman, this would approach censorship. May I be very clear that I'm strongly opposed to censorship of any kind in our society or anywhere else in the world. I've had in my experience two encounters with a sort of censorship. Uh, My song, Rocky Mountain High, was banned from many radio stations as a drug-related song. 
This was obviously done by people who had never seen or been to the Rocky Mountains and also had never experienced the elation, the celebration of life, or the joy in living that one feels when he observes something as wondrous as the Perseid meteor shower. Rocky Mountain High, Rocky Mountain High. I should note that, that in your book you mentioned that there were some artists in the 1980s, artists like Smokey Robinson, strangely Paul McCartney, that's kind of ironic. Mike Love from the Beach Boys, Harry Connick Jr. and Pat Boone all supported certain regulations uh, throughout the 80s. I'm not sure I would have ever heard of Frank Zappa had it not been for the Senate hearings because he was so well-spoken. He read the 45 words of the First Amendment in front of the Senate to explain that this is a First Amendment issue. And it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Strangely enough, his totally instrumental album, you write, Jazz from Hell, was given a parental advisory, explicit lyrics sticker, and it was based off of the album name being Jazz from Hell, and then a single song called something like, was it G-Spot Tornado or something like that? Mm -hmm. They stuck a parental advisory sticker on a fully instrumental album. PMRC also made some other mistakes. They cited that the Dead Kennedy single Nazi Punks Fuck Off is a song that glorifies Nazism. (laughs) I love this line from your book. You say... A glance at the song's lyrics, in parentheses, or a second look at the song's title shows otherwise. (laughs) And then it kind of died down until rap kind of came around several years later and caused the whole thing to get drummed up again. Yo, Dre, I got something to say. As Eric Newsom notes, the disputes of rap lyrics in the early 90s fueled censorship all over again. Some of the more notable examples were directed at groups like NWA, the Ghetto Boys, and Two Live Crew. In a high-profile case, a federal district court judge declared Two Live Crew's 1990 album as nasty as they want to be obscene. And Broward County, Florida Sheriff Nick Navarro was given license to arrest record store owners who sold the record. Two Live Crew band members Luther Campbell and Christopher Wongwon were both arrested for obscenity after performing their songs at an adults-only club. Eventually, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the decision and said the album wasn't obscene. The Supreme Court declined to review the case, so the Circuit Court ruling was left in force. Throughout the 90s and even up until today, debates about rap lyrics and using lyrics as evidence in criminal trials continues. From the Midwest to the East Coast is rap music on trial. Hip-hop artists are going to prison for major crimes and prosecutors say the evidence is right there in their music. Like this song, for instance, from Indianapolis rapper T. Ward. In 2018, he was convicted of a 2017 triple homicide 
The lyrics, two shots to the body, two shots to the dome, was linked to a crime scene. The controversy, of course, stems from distinguishing if lyrics are an admission of guilt or artistic expression. People often say no one accused Johnny Cash of actually shooting a man in Reno. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Over the years, a number of musicians have defended themselves in court over their song lyrics. Ozzy Osbourne was a defendant twice in lawsuits because he had a song titled Suicide Solution. People were looking to sue him over incitement that that their teens had, had committed suicide, as well as Marilyn Manson was under a lot of public scrutiny and from a lot of different public speakers after the shooting in Columbine. Some will be so brash to ask if we believe that all who hear Manson tomorrow night will go out and commit violent acts. The answer is no. But does everybody who, who watches a Lexus ad go and buy a Lexus? No, but a few do. If Marilyn Manson can walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior, I can say, not without a fight, you can't. Could you comment on uh, people's interpretation of saying that rock and roll leads to violence? Yeah. Um, there's been a long history of people who experience the tragic loss of a child by suicide, which I wouldn't will on anyone. And in their struggle to understand and comprehend what happened, they're looking for something to blame. And oftentimes people with extreme emotions are attracted to extreme things, uh, both as a way to contextualize the world and express their feelings and give indication of what's going on inside of them. And so the fact that a large number of kids who who considered suicide to be a solution for what ailed them, it's uh, not surprising that how many of them ended up gravitating towards heavy metal, regardless of what the thematic references are in the songs or the song title. And so you walk into a young person's room after they have committed suicide and you're looking around and you see this bizarre to you, uh, an adult, uh, album with a song called Suicide Solution or an inverted cross on the cover or it's black and, you know, as ACDC's black and black or whatever the situation is, and you start looking for things to blame. And the shock value in the artwork, in the music, in the lyrics, it has a broad amount of, of, of interpretive value, to, uh, um, but they see it as something that may have encouraged their otherwise docile teen to take their life or may have taken someone who was in trouble and pushed them over the edge. And a number of these instances have elevated to being lawsuits. You mentioned uh, Ozzy Osbourne, but it also happened to ACDC. It happened to Judas Priest involving messages that they claimed, the parents claimed were hidden inside the recordings that forced the children to want to harm themselves it's just like it just goes on and on and on and it's just heartbreaking because you see these people in pain and they're looking for someone to be angry at and they just happen to pick this musician and come up with unprovable claims i mean there could have been a copy of the wizard of oz in that bedroom too and they didn't blame the wizard of oz well ring around the rosy a 
I take it you were surprised at the number of instances you found of music censorship while writing the book, correct? I was most surprised at how cyclical a lot of censorship is. That I assume that people would learn lessons from follies of the past, and they never do. They just repeat the same problems over and over and over again. So a lot of the concerns that community leaders and parents use to justify keeping kids away from early rock music in the 1950s was the same arguments that was used in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and so on and so forth. It tends to be the same arguments over and over. But what really surprised me was how little merit there are to these claims. No one's ever been able to establish, and by ever I mean ever, not a single study has ever come out that has linked listening to music with people doing behavior that they weren't inclined to do before they listened to the music. So while music is a great evoker, it's not a provoker. It does not make you think things or feel things that you didn't feel. It just brings them out into you and expresses to the world how you're feeling and gives you an outlet for those feelings. But it doesn't make you feel any way or act any way. And I think that's been one of the recurring themes of music censorship has been the concern that listening to heavy metal music or Elvis Presley will make people become more prone to harm themselves or become sexually active before they otherwise would. And all that ended up not being true. And I was surprised that there is literally zero evidence to back up the most prominent and, and often repeated claim against uh, uh, to advocate for controlling, suppressing music. Another area I want to touch on real quick is that uh, censorship campaigns often don't apply evenly to different groups of people. So um, Clapton's uh, cover, I Shot the Sheriff, was a number one hit. Ice-T wrote the song Cop Killer. He was in a heavy metal band. They faced censorship from the Bush Quail administration and numerous others. 
the same theme, though, of shooting a police officer. It's, it's interesting. We had um, Eric Nielsen and Andrea Dennis mm-hmm. on the show in 2019. They're the authors of a 2019 book called Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America. And they show a strong correlation between hip-hop and mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Also, NPR came up with a podcast a couple years ago, Louder Than a Riot. And that uh, traces the interconnected rise of hip-hop and mass incarceration. I think they say it's, uh, it's about rhyme and punishment. So can you talk a little bit about how censorship is applied differently to different people and how it's been uneven in the legal system? Well, I don't. I can't really comment on the legal system, but I can tell you that censorship is often targeted at others. And one of the clearest indication of others, someone who comes from a very different cultural or race background than you do, and the assumption that they are more influenceable than you are, that uh, this someone of brown skin who is younger, uh, lives in a different part of town, who likes different types of music than your kids like or you liked, and you are assuming that they are more impressionable than you are. You listen to the song too, and you didn't go out and shoot a cop. You listened to the song too, and you didn't go, you know, put a cap in someone's ass. You know, it just defies logic how one person can listen to something, be completely unaffected, and yet others are more affected by it. And I think there's a lot of classism and racism, um, elitism that gets kind of hammered into those situations. And when you remove the music from the conversation, you see it for what it really is which is some, you know, Karen in Gross Point saying the kids in suburban Detroit can't listen to this, can't, can't be exposed to this because they're influential and become violent. Like, give me a break. How is, that, how is that ever true? And how do you prove it is true? And how do you, if you, and even if it was, which it isn't, how do you control for it in a way that doesn't keep everyone from me having access to that? Lastly, I had to ask him how music censorship tactics have changed since the book was published in 2001. Uh, I think it's a very different issue now than it was years ago. I think that artistic freedom and music freedom is a much bigger deal throughout the rest of the world than it is here in the United States for a variety of reasons, none of them particularly uh, because we've solved a problem that just stopped being a problem um, as much or as frequently. Um, it still does flare up from time to time. But I, I think, that, you know, interestingly, I put that book out in 2001. And then four, six months later, 9-11 happened. And we do have some breaking news that we want to bring you around. And we're going to go to a picture, a live picture from New York City. Apparently, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. And in the wake of that, in the lead up to the wars that followed, um, there was a lot of very frightening things that happened that showed how little tolerance people really have, especially if, if all of a sudden a crisis event like a 9-11 is thought to um, be, okay, we can forget the Constitution for a little bit. We have a couple things to take care of. You know, that, uh, that may be cases where that happens. I don't think it's ever happened in this country's history. Yeah, so I say that in the wake of 9-11, it was arguably a shocking and surprisingly difficult time for musicians who 
uh, oftentimes we're advocating for simple concepts like peace or understanding or being together or, um, you know, infamously, uh, the largest radio chain in the country decided not to play certain songs. For example, some of them were like, I'm burning for you or, you know, uh, things that the references just would be inappropriate in the wake of 9-11. Clear Channel Communications, today known as iHeartMedia, made a list of 165 songs and artists that might be voluntarily paused on 1,200 stations after the attacks on 9-11. Songs on this list included ACDC's TNT, Cat Stevens' Peace Train, or Peace Train, this country. Dave Matthews Band's Crash Into Me, Elton John's Benny and the Jets, and Carol King's I Feel the Earth Move. But then they also put on that stations should stop playing music by controversial artists. And their version of controversial artists were any artist who was identified as political in any way um, or had been involved in political action or was uh, thought to be kind of anti-patriotic, which was a kind of a weird thing to say, but was often bantered around that we should not be listening to anti-patriotic music during this time from anti-patriotic people. Um, and so that's probably the, the best answer to your question is the is the, in the wake of 9-11. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. Sure, no problem. No problem at all. I highly recommend picking up Eric Newsom's book, Parental Advisory, Music Censorship in America. It was a fantastic read that shed light on censorship campaigns throughout our country's history. While there is no shortage of music being released today, music censorship in America is a complicated story. And censorship, in various forms, has had a huge impact on what people are able to listen to. Certain cases of music censorship are governmental. Others are enforced by private record labels. Still others are cultural forms of censorship. Like other censorship campaigns, though, the consistent goal of a censor is to stop everyone else from hearing something that they disagree with. That was Fire's Aaron Reese interviewing Eric Newsom, who is the author of the book Parental Advisory, Music Censorship in America which can be found wherever fine books are sold. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, but this episode was co-hosted, produced, and recorded by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk. We also now have an Instagram account, which can also be found at the handle freespeechtalk. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We take email feedback at speak at thefire.org. And as I asked at the top of the show, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.